We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcast. Hello? We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Adam, why did you take over the play calling? I didn't take over. We did this. We've done the same thing the last four games. We, we were watching Dowell for the whole game. He wasn't doing anything. I mean, he was just standing there. He, he tells me it's not hard. This is not hard. We go through it. The, the drive before. Hey, these are the three plays. I do the third downs. So what happens after the three plays when you have a series? Because we were watching one where Dow was talking to Frank Pollock. He wasn't calling the plays you were. What part of the game was it? I want to say that was the third quarter. Yeah, when we got down, then I I was trying to do some of the two-minute stuff. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFC's Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And that was Adam Gase fumbling his way through a ridiculous press conference. I love that audio because he goes, I wasn't calling plays to, well, I was calling plays on third down to, oh, I was trying to do two minute stuff. Oh, Chris, we're petty human beings. And it's this like in just... the span of a minute, he went to, I'm not calling plays to, I'm calling plays. Oh, oh it scratches a deep itch for me. As we take a look around the AFC East, the Buffalo Bills are sitting at 8-3 and three in first place, <clears throat> fresh off a win against the Chargers where they kind of channeled their inner 2019. They really did look like the team that they were last year, but that's not a bad thing. Their defense finally showed that they can win a game on their own with not a lot of help from the offense, but enough. 
And that should be encouraging to Bills fans everywhere. Then you look at the Dolphins. They're 7-4, sitting in second place. The Dolphins, shocking to no one, beat the Jets to maintain their place behind Buffalo for the division lead. Should anyone be surprised that there's still some fan angst lingering over your decision to change your quarterback? I mean, hey, what? Two is injured. What can you do? Then you've got the Patriots at 5-6, and six, which who shockingly stave off playoff elimination by beating the Arizona Cardinals, who seem to struggle against everyone in the AFCs not playing in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, well, I mean, Kyler Murray, second-year quarterback. You would think Belichick's got some stuff up his sleeve for that. I'm sure. I mean, that, that seems to be consistent with the story around Belichick and just how he's approached football in general. I mean, I don't know what's more improbable. The fact that the Patriots pulled off this win or that they pulled it off with one of the ugliest quarterback performances of the 2020 season. And then you got the Jets. I mean, to see that (laughs) apparently Sam Darnold is now fully in on the tanking effort. That's good to know. Like I said, I don't don't talk about these games anymore. I let Will Ferrell do it for me. How'd you do that? I'm not even mad. That's amazing. Who could be mad about a... (laughs) In a circus like what the Jets currently have. A lying head coach, a miserable roster, a murky future, and a quote-unquote franchise quarter. Remember when they were so high on Darnold? Remember when I was high on Darnold? Yeah. Remember the bet you made with me? Uh, if only you had made a return bet. I know. I look back at that all the time and say to myself, man, you missed a golden opportunity to shame Chris. But I feel like you having to wear that stupid mohawk is punishment enough. Not even mad, Chris. That's exactly where we kick this thing off. As the New York Jets fell to the Miami Dolphins by a score of 20 to 3, here as he is every week to talk to us about it and vent a little of his pain, Mr. Scott Mason, how are you doing? (laughs) Drew, the Jets are 0-5 in the division now. This is possibly going to be a banner year for them in the AFC East. It could possibly go 0-6. We'll see because they've got that big showdown at the end of the season with the Patriots in Week 17. (laughs) Hey, listen, if it goes down, that could be great football if it goes the way the last game went. It's true. That game was way more entertaining than I expected. I'll say that. Than most people did. And I guess that's, that's where I want to start this conversation. Coming off of two weeks of surprisingly competitive football, the triumphant return of Sam Darnold that wasn't. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't know that anybody has ever tripped and fallen as hard on their face as the Jets did. I think part of it is just knowing that, hey, things could be better. I mean, I just, I, I sent you, if you check your DMs, I just sent you a chart. Because I, as Chris knows, because I have a sickness, I, I need data laid out in front of me in some kind of a form that makes sense. I created a chart looking at the Jets quarterback's last two games. The last two games for Darnold and the last two games for Joe Flacco. And when you look at the stark contrast between the two, which I've, we're also going to tweet out over at Rockpile Report. So if you're listening to this, go take a look at it for yourself. In average points per game, the percentage change between Flacco and Darnold was 400%. Average first downs, 65.2%. Passing yards per game was 50%. And touchdown passes, 
five to nothing, a 500% increase in touchdown passes with Joe Flacco at the helm compared to Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold comes back being your third overall pick, the former future face of the New York Jets franchise, and your team scores three points. <laughs> I just, I don't know what to do with that. From your vantage point, is is Sam Darnold really this bad? <laughs> well, I think the question isn't, and this is where, where a lot of Jets fans get confused. It's not what how good was 2018 Sam Darnold. It's how good is 2020 Sam Darnold. Because the guy that everybody thought was this promising young quarterback, it's not the same guy anymore. And you see it. He's regressed quite a bit. He doesn't see open receivers. He makes the wrong reads. He holds the ball too long. He locks his eyes. You could make an entire list. And so there is this thought that if he gets with the right coach that he can turn things around. And it's possible. Don't get me wrong. But right now, Listen, watching not for him. No, nothing, not for nothing. And I usually don't cut you off, but Alex Smith did it. Okay, Alex Smith spent the early portions of his years being screwed with one bad coach after another bad coach after another bad coach. And then he went to the Kansas City Chiefs and Andy Reid and revived his career to the tune of like a, I think, almost a $100 million contract extension because he was so good. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities that Darnold could do the same thing, right? Sure. Well, first of all, in fairness, I would argue that he resurrected his career under Harbaugh in San Francisco first, and then he got traded after they decided to roll with Kaepernick. But yeah, he, he did do well with Kansas City. I think the thing with Alex Smith is, though, A, he's an outlier that very rarely happens, and B, he's fine, but he's not what you expect when you take a guy first overall in the draft. He, <laughs> no. If they would have picked him, say, middle of the first round or something you'd say okay solid value you know but to get a guy like that number one overall now listen like you said is it impossible no look even drew Brees. i mean he was the second round pick but still same thing he was really not all that good the first couple years and then his last year in san diego the light bulb went on and all of a sudden he had an excellent year and then of course we know what he did with the saints so it's been done it just doesn't happen a lot the thing is you have to understand when you take donald at this point like I said, you're not getting 2018 Darnold. You're getting 2020 Darnold, which means you're getting him with all these bad habits, with the shaken confidence, so on and so forth. So it's a major rebuilding project. And while it can be done, it's going to take some really strong coaching, and it's going to take a lot of effort. And I don't know that it's going to be able to happen right away. I think it may be a process that takes a year or two for him to be able to get anywhere close to back to where he was in, say, 2018 when he first came in as a blank slate. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. He's still only 23 years old, and he obviously has plenty of ability. We've seen it. But, again, it's going to be a tough task, and, and it's not a slam dunk by any stretch. Were you surprised to watch how – because it seemed like the offense was – especially last week, you saw Denzel Mims making plays – you saw the rushing attack start to find some semblance of continuity. You started to see signs of life from a Jets offense that had been stagnant for most of the year. And then you plug Sam Darnold in thinking, okay, guys are maybe some guys are getting healthy. Maybe these are the spark plugs to Darnold's success. Maybe this is when we need to really start seeing this from our, our captain, our number three overall pick. 
And for him to fall that hard and just kind of revert back to a worse version of what he was when he went to the bench, which was not good, was that sort of deflating for the Jets fan base? Well, he did look reasonably good very early on, and then it sort of progressively got worse in the game. So at first, people were like, oh, Sam Darnold looks okay. That first drive was pretty good. Threw a nice strike downfield to Brashad Perriman. But I think what, what you really have to look at with Darnold is you have to manage reasonable expectations now because, again, if you're a Jets fan, you have to know that this is not the guy that we saw at the end of 2018. This is the guy that we've watched in 2020. So when you go in with those expectations, then you just say to yourself, okay, I hope he's better than he was the week before. And I think that's where most Jets fans were at. There were some people that I think maybe had some unreasonable expectations for him to come out and have this majorly awesome game after being out with an injury for a couple of weeks. But I think the thing that people understand now, too, is that Joe Flacco, one thing that a lot of teams have been doing is they've been saying to the Jets, all right, you're going to have to beat us downfield. And as we know, Joe Flacco, that's his biggest strength. It's really the only thing that he's quote-unquote elite because everybody loves to use that word with him. The only thing he's elite at is throwing that deep ball down the field. So if you have a guy like Brashad Perriman who's able to leave guys in his dust, well, all of a sudden here comes Flacco throwing him two touchdowns a week or whatever it is. And while Darnold was able to hit Perriman a couple times, they weren't able to cash in as much. Jameson Crowder open quite a bit in this game. There was one where he was open, wide open for a touchdown. Darnold never saw him. Mims made some nice plays. There was one that he took uh, for 30 yards. So there, there's pieces there, and you saw the glimpses of it again, and that's really what it is with Darnold is you see the glimpses. You see a couple of really nice plays, but then you see he lock he locks his eyes on a predetermined read with Xavier Howard, and you guys don't need me to tell you this because you're AFC East fans. You don't want to play around with Xavier Howard. He's one of the best corners in the league. And I've said this before. I think the three best corners in the league, whatever order you want to put them in, are all in the AFC East. Gilmore, Travis White, and Xavier Howard. And so Darrell kept testing Howard. I kept tweeting during the game. I said, Darrell may want to stop playing around with Xavier Howard. There was one, actually. I don't know if you guys saw this. But Denzel Mims turned into a defensive back and actually tried to tackle Xavier. Xavier Howard could have called for a fair catch. This was down by the goal line, and uh, Mims had to turn into a defensive back and basically tackle him. So that's unfortunately what you see with Darnold too much, too, is those mistakes that should have been gone a couple of years ago. As we've said before, it's the 2018 Josh Allen stuff, and that's kind of what you have to understand you're going to see a fair amount of with Darnold. Is there any concern that he's done so much to damage his trade value that once you guys inevitably draft a new quarterback— whether it's with the number one overall pick or not, that you're not going to be able to get much for Sam on the open market. I mean, I know quarterbacks, they people pay a premium for them because they're it's that it's that position that every team that doesn't have one desperately wants one. And so you'll find GMs out there that are willing to make trades and do some outlandish things to land quarterbacks. That being said, do you think that Darnold has done any damage this season to his stock that Jets fans should be concerned about the return on him? Yes, but it has to be secondary to what Jets fans are rooting for otherwise because as much as you want Darnold's stock to be as high as possible for a trade, you also don't want it to be a situation where he has, say, two good games 
and that robs them of what everybody is knock on wood hoping for right now. So I do think that there's reason for concern, though, with his trade value only because, and I was talking to a friend about this the other day, at this point, if you're trading for Darnold, I see it sort of the same way that you would take a stab at quarterback on day two or early day three. You're not looking at him as a guy that should definitely be the solution to your quarterback problem. You're looking at him as a guy at, who, who falls in the mold of, this guy's got talent, and I think we could coach him up and do something with him. And if it doesn't work out, well, we didn't use a first-round pick on him, so no harm, no foul. I think it's going to be up to Joe Douglas in the offseason to create a market for Darnold, and that's really what's going to determine this because you know what it is. It's all about supply and demand. On paper, you wouldn't think the Jets would get more than, say, a fourth-round pick, but if there's, say, four, five, six teams that are interested, then it just becomes a matter of who really wants him and how far are you willing to go. Can you get a second-round pick? Could you even get, say, the Steelers if they have the 32nd pick to give you that because they might look at it and say, well, he's better than any quarterback that we're going to be able to draft at 32. I don't know. It's very possible that it goes the other way and the market doesn't materialize. So it's going to depend on what happens the rest of the way, but really more importantly, what kind of market Douglas can put together for Darnold. Because remember, a lot of these guys still remember their evaluation of him when he came out of USC. And some all it takes is one person to say, you know what? I still believe he can be that guy I'm willing to give up a second round or whatever it is to get him. So that's really where the question comes. Trust in. me. If there's anybody who knows what it's like to have a quarterback that people won't move off of their draft day evaluations of it's bills fans. <laughs> we know all about that. I'd be remiss. And again, we opened the show with it. So I would be remiss if I didn't indulge our pettiness. <laughs> Cause I mean, <laughs> let, let's face it. That's what, that's what most of our existence here over at the rock power report is built around. We are the hardest drinking pettiest bills podcast. We couldn't help but kind of revel in this circus taking place over here with Adam Gase and the media. There's a post-game press conference after this latest loss. And it's been a big thing all season since the Joe Douglas doesn't seem content to fire Gase yet. That he's going to be left to flounder around and thrash in the public eye until his inevitable demise. So with that said, even in that light, you think he could do that ceremoniously, but he can't. The guy just can't keep his hands off the wheel, and he actually gets caught in lies that because he's not smart enough to talk his way out. Like, he doesn't have contingencies built in his head, like, hey, if I could ask this question, here's what how I'll respond. Here's a slick way for me to handle some confrontational situations, considering my team is doing so poorly. Instead, he goes up there to the podium every time, and it's he knows it's going to be a shooting gallery. And he almost, it's like he he's Mr. Magoo, and he just gets up there and doesn't see the things coming, and then he steps in it every single time. This week, it was him claiming that he, he because he has, he has talked about how he had turned over play calling, and he publicly admits that he didn't turn over play calling because they called him out on the fact that, hey, we see your offensive coordinator. Jets fans can't be thrilled about this, right? Is it embarrassing? <laughs> it's really weird, but in, in a strange way, it's added some extra entertainment to a season that has sort of lacked it. I think Josh Conrad on our show 
the there's always next year, which airs uh, Tuesdays on the Play Like a Jet feed, had a great line. He said something along the lines of Adam Gase tends to add intrigue to areas where there shouldn't be intrigue. <laughs> and I think that's what's going on with this. The, the whole thing is crazy because essentially as the clips that you guys played will tell the story better, but I'll sort of try to unpack it. The B reporters noticed that Adam Gase was on headset and that Dowell Loggins had his hands in his pockets, <laughs> which is a pretty good sign that Dowell Loggins is not calling the plays unless he's doing it via telepathy. Right. So then he was asked about it by Rich Semini of ESPN.com and he started saying, what do you mean? And it didn't seem to have an answer, like you said. And then it was followed up by Connor Hughes of The Athletic, who said, well, we saw Dowell with his hands in his pockets. He wasn't doing anything. And he said, oh, well, when in the game was that? And he said, oh, that was on third quarter. And he said, oh, I was trying to do some fourth, uh, third down stuff and all that. And then he later in the week, he said something along the lines of, well, they were splitting up play calling, and he was trying to do some stuff on third down. What did and, Sam Darnold uh, say? has final say and he's, and all this other stuff. And then they did ask Sam Darnold about it and Darnold and see, so this is how it goes. The, even when Loggins is calling the plays or supposedly calling the plays because it's gotten to the point where nobody really knows what's happening. He relays the plays into Gase and then Gase relays them into whoever the quarterback is. So Darnold didn't, he just said, look, I only hear Adam's voice. That's it. I don't know who's doing what you're going to have to ask them about it. So the whole thing is just crazy. And really, the, the theory that Andy Vasquez uh, put forth on the show on Monday on the postgame report, and it's the only one that makes any sense to me, is that the Jets offense did better the last couple of weeks with Dowell Loggins calling the plays. And so Adam Gase didn't want people to know that he took back the play calling because the offense was so bad this week compared to the previous two weeks that people would say, well, why did you take the big calling away from Dowell? Dowell's better than you. And his ego couldn't handle that because he said this week, Drew, that it gives them a competitive advantage for other people not to know. How would it give them a competitive, anybody a competitive advantage they, who cares who's calling the plays? You don't know which, as long as you don't know which play is coming, why does it, like, if you guys were calling plays, if if you're asking a question or, or Chris is asking a question, why does it matter as long as the question's the same? So it was just ridiculous, and it's, like you said, he's another guy, he just goes out there, and I guess he doesn't have any plan for when these lies get exposed, and he just has no explanation ready in his head to combat it. So he just kind of plays that old Vinny Barbarino on Welcome Back Cotter routine where they would say something like, Vinny, why did you steal the telephone? And he'd say, telephone? They'd be like, yeah, you know, the telephone. Uh, where? Oh, uh, it's, it's in your, on your desk. What desk? Oh, you know, the desk over there. Oh, uh, yeah, I found the phone. Where was it? Oh, it was just laying around in the principal's office. And that's what it is. Like, he just plays dumb and plays dumb and plays dumb until he gets led <laughs> to a point where there's nowhere else to go. Chris? A coach and an offensive coordinator who not only sucks at his job but can't even lie about being bad at his job? <sighs> I will drink to that. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody what you have going on over this week over at Play Like a Jet and where they can find you on social? 
So we got some fun stuff this week, actually. Like I said, uh, we do the post-game report. E- each day the show goes up just after midnight. So if you're an insomniac, you work a late shift, you're going to the gym late, or you're going to the gym or work early in the morning and you want it there first thing in the morning, it's there for you. Mondays, it's the post-game report with Andy Vasquez where we unpack the game. And, of course, Andy, bless his heart, tried to unpack all that weird gay post-game press conference stuff this week. And I think he was probably cursing me under his breath for having him do that <laughs> tuesdays we do there's always next year with brian bassett the godfather of jets podcast he and his buddies travis milton who's a chef and josh conrad who's a pastor they talk about the jets they play some fun jets based games they they laugh they even make some golden girls and cheesecake references fairly uh, regularly so that's a fun one wednesdays we do midweek news chris ryan from nj.com will join me to do that but this week i've got nick spano from u stadium and we're going to talk about some stuff that he's heard whispers because nick is very plugged in so he's heard some stuff about the jets coaching search and and some guys that they're talking about behind the scenes some stuff about the quarterback stuff that you were just alluding to and so we've got that this week and then on thursdays it's uh, you know an alternating show between connor rogers a bleacher report and charlie campbell of uh, WalterFootball.com, where we talk draft stuff, which is what everybody's really interested in right now. Michael Nania does the stats. We take a look at the analytics on Fridays. Saturdays, we break down the film with your old buddy, Joe Blewett. And then on Sundays, it's the pregame report and mailbag with Chris Nimbley of JetsInsider.com, as we like to call him, the very big deal. And we also get some gambling tips from Walter Cherpinski of WalterFootball.com. So full slate of shows every week. Gentlemen, really appreciate you having me on. As always, it's a lot of fun to be able to do this audio therapy with you guys. And I feel like if I could take the beating from you guys, then nothing can hurt me. You guys <laughs> toughen me up for the world of being a Jets fan, and I appreciate that. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Bet BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE. Are all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Meanwhile, you have the Miami Dolphins on the other side of that, on the other side of that game, right? Yeah. They obviously won, and but in the process, kind of in, if you if you pay attention to Twitter and Facebook and all the things that are coming out around the fan base, they inherited a quarterback controversy that nobody wanted. Now, being Bills fans over the last 30 years, we've witnessed our share of quarterback-related nonsense and controversy. There was the Doug Flutie and the Rob Johnson era. We all know how that ended. Yes. J.P. Losman and Kelly Holcomb. <laughs> E.J. Manuel and Jeff Toole. Yeah, that's right. Jeff Toole, who was so popular among the, gra- among the fan base that there was a grassroots tool time movement they made shirts you weren't even gonna throw in kevin cobb into that argument kevin cobb he slipped on a mat (laughs) he never even got a chance to insert himself a piece of rubber took him out 
and then Tyrod against literally anyone else who could have trotted out there. Peterman. Bills fans, yeah, oh yeah, until we did. Until yeah. we did trot someone else out there, and how did that end? <laughs> the Peterman game. Typically, quarterback controversies are synonymous with struggling teams and coaches who are desperate for a quote-unquote answer. And fans who feed off that coaching staff's desperation and try to make it into something bigger. So it's interesting to me to see that Miami is now suffering undertones of something similar, despite being in the thick of a playoff hunt, even as their coach attempts to tell everybody he's almost like the wizard in the he's almost like the guy in the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. There's nothing to see here. There is no quarterback controversy. And yet fans aren't dumb. They see what's taking place in the football field, and I understand their frustration. And Chris, if you want to break it down like this, first of all, that game against the Jets wasn't won because their offense was so overwhelmingly talented. It was won because Xavier Howard had two interceptions, and they really defensively did a number on the Jets. Put their offense in a lot of good positions to score points. It's not because... Chris, if they had run up the score like like the Patriots did to the Bills on Sunday Night Football, yeah, I would look at that and say, oh, your offense, hey, you're pretty good. No, that's not what they did. <laughs> they only scored 20 points. That's not good. I mean, we scored 24 against the Chargers. They're better. They have a Joey Bosa. 27. 27. They, they're better, right? Yeah. So you should be able to score more than that against this team. Especially since they've now put Brian Poole on IR, that they've cut uh, Pierre Desir, that they're essentially playing practice squad guys at defensive back. Yeah. And yet yeah. here we are. They want that number one overall pick. So now you've got a full-blown quarterback controversy amongst the fans. And it's hilarious to me. First of all, you've got the crowd that's favoring Fitz. According to the graphic that showed up during their win against the Jets... Ryan Fitzpatrick actually leads all active quarterbacks in the NFL in touchdown passes into coverage windows of one yard or less. That according to NFL Next Gen Stats. When you look at what Fitz is, he's he's a steady veteran presence that when the team around him is playing at its best, he can carry a team to a victory against slightly above average to mediocre competition, right? Yeah. And he can beat up bad teams. He won't ever be the reason you win, but he can do a lot of nice things for you if everyone else is doing their jobs well. And he's unfazed by pressure, and he can't really at this point in his career because he's seen it all. You're not going to fool him very often. I mean, he's a gunslinger, so if anything, he gets in trouble because he's overconfident in his arm. But you're not going to trick him by nature of putting out a complicated defensive scheme. Something that was to his unraveling point in the previous game that led to his benching. Now on to his side of the fence, you've got a guy who, young, hopefully future of the franchise. Yep. Who clearly reads the field well and has the ability to make dynamic plays when he's called upon. I think he does a mountain more to protect the football than Ryan Fitzpatrick ever did. I mean, look at the, (laughs) look at the numbers. Fitzpatrick has eight interceptions. That compared to to was none. Yeah, zero. There's only turnover was his first ever 
play, right? Yeah, and if fum- you, fumbled the, the ball to Aaron Donald. And if you factor in Fitzpatrick's two inter- two fumbles, it's 10-1 to 1 in favor of Fitz being more careless with the football. When you do that, when you look at the team that the Miami Dolphins have built, a narrative starts to form, especially when you're dealing with a quarterback who has more long-term upside than Ryan Fitzpatrick. Fitz has three losses all of them within 10 points in games early on in the season when the team was missing its best defensive backs. And it was its rushing attack just by nature of having a young offensive line hadn't found its legs. Counter to that, Tua's singular loss came on a day when he was unable to overcome the struggles of the team that was laid out in front of him. The running game couldn't get going. Their offensive line was beat up and it wasn't doing well to promote the rushing attack. And in that game, he struggled to try to carry them. And while not turning the ball over, he got too conservative, which led to him holding onto the ball too long and absorbing six sacks before the coach was like, okay, I can't see any more of this. I have to put Fitz out there. And he tried to make a comeback. He really did. He almost had it. He pulled the old, uh, he turned into Ryan Fitzpatrick. Through a pick? Through a pick at the end of the game when you're leading a charge down the field to hopefully tie, maybe take the lead. <laughs> I feel like it's patented Fitzpatrick, right? Yes, it is. I just, when you're playing the way this team is playing, you're playing hard defense and running well, you can compete in a lot of games by just not making mistakes, which is why Tua has become very attractive to the fan base. Yet there's guys who look at Fitzpatrick and say, well, Fitzpatrick's the grizzled veteran who you can't trick. So you extrapolate that out to what it means for the 2020 Dolphins. They have one cake matchup left on their schedule. Coming against this week, a Cincy team that just gave the Giants a run for their money despite being without their star quarterback. They play Kansas City, New England at home, and then they go on the road to Vegas and Buffalo. All of those teams are in the upper half of the league in scoring, and they're all better than average on defense. So the question becomes, which of these two starting quarterbacks is the one you trust enough to make the plays necessary to keep you in some high-scoring, high-pressure affairs? Chris, would you trust a rookie quarterback as a team that's trying very hard knowing that you have a special defensive season on your hands. Would you trust a rookie to go into games against Kansas City and New England? The way that rookies have been playing the last couple of years, rookie quarterbacks, and even this year you can look at Justin Herbert. And especially in his last start against Denver. I would trust two in this situation. Wow. Rookies rookies have been good across the board. Now, you can't, like, with Herbert's situation, you can't factor in dumb coaching. But the guy's been <laughs> no. the guy's been lights out. Burrow, I think with Burrow, you've thought, like, oh, my God, look at that Bengals offensive line. They're not going to – I mean, they did get him injured, but he's been <laughs> performing better than you most people expected. I think Tua would be fine in this situation. I understand where you come from. 
I just wonder if there's not, because there's obviously a large contingent of the fan base that thinks Fitz is their best chance to win over that rough slate of games. Just by nature of the fact that, like I said, you can't confuse him the way, listen, the the Denver Broncos have four wins. You don't get to four wins at week 13 of the NFL season by accident. You end up there because your team isn't very good. So the fact that that defense was able to flummox this young quarterback means that when you go up against good coaching, not just good coaching, but great coaching, like what Kansas City and New England have to offer, and here in Buffalo, I argue you you might be signing this young kid up to take a beating. And if you truly, as a coach, want to make the playoffs, your best play might be to put Fitzpatrick in there. Yes, he's going to make some mistakes, but he's also not going to be gun-shy. I mean, if Tua goes out there this week against Cincy and shows any kind of turtling because of pressure, or if Cincy is able to make him pause in terms of his ability to read the field and throw the football, I think they have a full-blown quarterback controversy on their hands. And the problem with that is is that we saw it with Lawson and uh, Lossman and Kelly Holcomb. It's fine to bench a kid once and call it a teaching moment. It's another thing to have to do it again later in the season because you just need a quarterback that's harder to game plan for, or at least isn't has more unflappability to them as a quarterback. <laughs> if this happens, if they go out there and stumble even a little bit against Cincy. I feel like there could be some really ugly things coming for this. Ugly, hard decisions coming for this Miami team. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resume on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. are visiting Indeed each month. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. And so we're going to jump into what I think was the most improbable outcome of any game in the AFC East this weekend, the New England Patriots somehow beating the Arizona Cardinals. 
to talk us through this nonsense, we have Mark Schofield. How are you doing tonight? Playoff time, baby. Oh. oh, my God. Choo-choo, baby. Chris. The playoff train running through Foxborough, friends. We literally just last week, with the help of Mike DeBate from over at Lockdown Patriots, tried to shovel dirt onto the Patriots' grave. Nope. And the Undertaker meme, baby. This is what we get, right? We're back. Well, you We're would, back. We're back at the game. You would figure that Belichick is the one that would be able to contain Kyler Murray. I just, I, I don't understand it. And help me, help me make sense of this, Schofield. The Patriots, behind the grossest passer rating, the lowest of any winning quarterback this season with more than 15 pass attempts, of a 23.6 for Cam Newton. He somehow comes away the victor in this football game over Kyler Murray. I want you to explain to me, first of all, what adjustments did your team make in the secondary from the Houston game to this game? Well, I think part of it, Drew, is Deshaun Watson right now is a better quarterback than Kyler Murray. You know, I think that's a big part of it because because Murray missed some opportunities, missed some throws. There were chances to be made for him to win that game, and he led guys out of bounds, missed some chances. I think Cliff Kinsbury got at one point in this game a bit conservative, and I do think that this game turned on that goal line stand before halftime because they stopped him, and then after that, Kinsbury was a bit more conservative. He thought maybe, oh, you know, they stopped us there. Like, I don't want to take chances. Like, I just want to play to win this game. And Arizona still had that game won. Like, they just missed a field goal that should have won it. And then Isaiah Simmons had a questionable hit on Cam Newton on a third and long situation that gave them the opportunity to get into field goal range. And so I was, I don't think so much that, you know, they did some smart things. They played well in the secondary they played a lot of man coverage, and even though Arizona was running a ton of mesh, a lot of man coverage beaters, they covered those concepts well. I think Murray missed some throws. They had a huge goal line stand. You had a dumb penalty, and that gave New England a shot. I just it, – it, it boggles my mind that Arizona can somehow lose to Miami and New England, and yet they beat – the team that's leading the division that both of those teams I reside mean, in. And look what they needed to get to do that. Like a ridiculous Hail Mary that 99 times out of 100 isn't getting completed. You know, And they got the one chance with DeAndre Hopkins making a ridiculous catch to win that game. So, I mean, I, I don't know if in a sense we're overrating the Arizona Cardinals or perhaps maybe underrated the three teams that we're talking about that are relevant in the AFC East because look what Arizona had to do to win those that game against Buffalo and the two losses, Miami, New England, those came down to basically the final seconds. I, Chris, it, it's just painful to see, isn't it? Yeah, it Knowing is. that that's the game that sparks this talk of the Patriots are back. Oh, don't count them out yet. I thought we were done with this, Mark. No, you're, you're no, but I mean, let's be honest. This is a five and six team that has a putrid passing game. Yeah, albeit they've had two games where it looked like they could throw the football. Seattle and Houston, and they lost both of them. And so, I don't think this Patriots passing game is fixed. I don't think that this running game is as good as it was back in 2018. 
when there were the same concerns about the passing game. I think the defense, while good, is not as great as it needs to be. So this is still a very flawed football team that has back-to-back games out in L.A. The Chargers, yeah, say what you want about them. You know, you guys saw them this week. Um, but the Rams are still a very good football team, especially when they're at home with a very good defense that I think is going to do more than enough to shut down what there is of this Patriots offense. And so, you know, it's a glimmer of hope in a season when that's most Patriots fans have to cling to is hope. So I don't think we should really get over our skis here and say, yeah, let's really worry about these guys right now. It's going to take more than just one win on the final play against Arizona to really get me and others to buy in on this team. As an analyst of the Patriots, how happy were you to see Chase Winovich climb out of the doghouse? I mean, oh, I th- I, I, look, Chase Winovich, Lawrence Guy, Adam Butler, like unsung heroes of that victory. I mean, Adam Butler had his first sack of the season, got a lot of inside penetration both against the run and when Kyler Murray dropped a pass. I think you look at Lawrence Guy, that goal line stand, which as I think really turned that game around, that was the play that he made to swallow that double team and keep guys like Spence and Juwan Bentley clean to make the tackle on Kenyon Drake. And yeah, look, Winovich had a huge role in that game. He had some smart, disciplined pass rushing opportunities against Kyler Murray when he didn't sort of bite off more than he could chew. He stayed home, kept him in the pocket. The interception was pretty much Winovich just recognizing a quick game drop, jumping like a madman, like from the second that ball was snapped almost to get into that throwing lane, to get Kyler Murray's eyes to drop. And then you had Adam Butler get to the ball, um, to tip it in the air to make that interception. And so Woodovich played great. Guy played great. Adam Butler played great. They got contributions from those guys up front. Josh Uche, like, you know, had a couple of moments. And even your boy, Anthony Jennings. I don't think he should have got flagged on that punt return, but, you know, had some play to get that block in there. And they needed that block at that moment, even though he got flagged for it. So they're getting some contributions from some of the younger guys, which was good to see. And we'll see if they can keep it going against yet another big-armed athletic type of quarterback now in Justin Herbert. Something Chris and I have talked about that I think might pay dividends in your upcoming game against Justin Herbert is just how it's easier to flummox young quarterbacks. It really is. I mean, the Bills made hay with it back in 2019 when we faced three different quarterbacks who had a season or less of experience. And we went not just 3-0 and in those games, but we made those quarterbacks look terrible. You got Bill Belichick. The mystique on him is that no rookie quarterback ever beats him and no young quarterback beats him. I mean, it takes you have to move mountains if you're going to beat the Patriots in your second year or first year. Obviously, Kyler Murray didn't have that. What do you think about the upcoming matchup with Herbert knowing what he's accomplished, but then what the Bills were able to put on tape about how to shut him down? Yeah, well, it's interesting. What's given Herbert fits this year played into one of the Bills' strengths defensively, which is rotating your secondary, spinning your safeties at the snap, showing your quarterback one look, and then running something else. You look at the Trey White interception, and it's a perfect example of that because you have motion pre-snap. He knows it's zone coverage. He sees the two high safeties at the snap. Then he's probably thinking it's covered two. One of the safeties crashes down, they rotate it, and he doesn't see Trey White, who just poaches that you know crossing vertical route from left to right. He just reads his eyes perfectly. That's an example of you know confusing the quarterback a little bit and showing him something that he wasn't expecting. That's really what has given Herbert some trouble this year. 
And the Bills do such a great job with Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, spinning those safeties to the snap. It's one of the things that they do so well, and it's one of the things that makes them so tough to go up against, even for veteran quarterbacks like Tom Brady. So that's something that I think Bill Belichick will certainly have in the game plan. He'll do it more where he's showing you too high and then spinning down to some sort of combination cover one, some sort of variation of cover one because he thinks that's God's coverage. But, you know, the athleticism from Justin Herbert, the ability to extend plays – He's more, I'd say, in the Watson mold than the Murray mold with how he does it. And that's what typically gives New England fits. They have a lot of trouble defending Deshaun Watson. And I think a lot of teams do right now. But so I don't think this is a sort of a gimme, a layup for New England at all. You know, I oh. think this is a quarterback that's going to give them trouble. I think this is a game that's going to give them trouble. And would it shock me if the Patriots find a way to lose this? Absolutely not. Does it give you any confidence knowing that we beat we beat them? By two scores. We just were coming off a win at home, which you won't have that advantage. But I don't know in a, in a year when there's no fans, I don't know what home field advantage is anymore. Like, I don't right. know if that matters. It's something we actually talked about in this week's Rockpile Report. But when you look at the Chargers and their game against Buffalo, we played a vintage 2019 game where our quarterback didn't really do a ton in the air. He wasn't asked to. In fact, it was a lot of designed runs, and it was just, hey. In fact, it was, hey, don't screw this up and turn the ball over. And he did. We still did. And even with that, we won by two scores. With what the New England Patriots are capable of cobbling together on defense and what their offense could be in that kind of a mold, does that give you any hope that they can come out of this with a win? I mean, yeah. I I think... You look at how that game unfolded in Buffalo last week. You look at you know, some of the strengths of this Patriots offense right now, running the football, making some plays off of play action. Play action has been an area where they've had success. Obviously, you're worried about stopping the run if you're the Chargers and the Chargers defense and you're Gus Bradley. And so you know, I think there are ways that they can cobble together a game plan where we'll force the rookie quarterback to make some mistakes. We'll get some turnovers or a turnover or two. We'll get a short field or two. We'll play a field position game. Just don't turn this ball over. The problem is, you know, even at the end of that Arizona game, you know, that bad interception that Cam Newton threw, that was the kind of situation you were in as an offense. Just don't turn the ball over. You're having some success moving the football. I don't know if they can play a turnover-free game on offense, Drew, to be honest. I think if they do, they'll win this game, but it's an if. If... Okay, so we're talking about ifs. I'm just going to ask this as we let you go. If they win this game on the road in a stadium where they're then going to come back and play the following week, how insufferable is Patriots Nation going to become after we've all thrown the proverbial dirt over them? I mean... Drew, that sort of begs the question and it sort of assumes that we're, we've stopped being uns- insufferable. I mean, <laughs> by, by phrasing it that way, you're saying that we've somehow stopped and will become insufferable again, where I think we've already been there. We've been there for a long time. You know, I, I think this one, it's more the second one. If they win both of these games out in L.A., they're staying out there. They're going to stay at UCLA. They're going to practice at UCLA. If they win both of those now, and you're talking about a team that's now 7-6, and six, that's cutting above 500 despite everything that has happened, and now they're looking at three AFC East games, and we all know, no matter what the records are, <laughs> divisional games are tougher. 
Like, yeah, you could make the case that we will be extremely insufferable and perhaps with reason. Because if they get to seven and six now and you've got the Jets, the Dolphins, and the Bills, I mean, the the, the door is open. The Undertaker meme is there. The casket has come open. And nobody wants to see Bill Belichick in the playoffs, even with a hobbled team that can barely cobble together a semblance of the passing game. Nobody wants to see that. So, yeah, we'll be pretty insufferable. Chris, would that or would that not be peak 2020? That the Patriots, after being as bad as they've been, after winning a game with 82 passing yards, could be a playoff team. I mean, hey, you know, you just want them to lose so, like, their percentage is not there. Like, you want them out of that race immediately. (laughs) I mean, I think what you guys want from your perspective is them to somehow maybe split or even win these two. Get to seven and six, but then lose the rest of them. Yeah. So, you know, seven and nine, that kind of game, that kind of season. Because, you know, if they lose the rest of these games, okay, and they finish five and 11 or something like that, they're going to get a good, pretty good draft pick. If they win the rest of them and get into the playoffs, you know, they are all likely one and done. I think you want them to, like, split the rest of these so they get, like, that, like, picking, like, the 17 range, which isn't great. Not good enough to get up and get a good draft pick out of it. Not good enough to package it up to get a quarterback or something like that. So I think that's what you want them to do, right? Well, the ideal situation. Be like draft purgatory. The ideal situation is that you either lose both of these games in L.A. or lose one of them. And then uh, Buffalo beating New England on Monday Night Football is the nail in the coffin that mathematically eliminates you from the playoffs in front of the entire nation. That's what, what that's what I'm going for. No, 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 no. Cause what, well then it, but then they play in the jets week 17 with nothing to play yeah. for with the jets trying to outsuck them football that bad. Yeah. A Patriots team that's trying to lose. And then the jets. And a jets team that's trying to lose in order to stay undefeated. That becomes the most unwatchable TV of all time. It might create a vortex that sucks all of us into it. Well, then the but, jet, the Jets win, and then the Jaguars get number one. It'll at least be in <laughs> 2021. So, I mean, it's not like things in 2020 could get worse with a game like that. I don't know, because then what that does, Chris, if they lose out, then they end up with Trask or Fields or some other Trey Lance. quarterback in the draft. Damn you, Mark Schofield, <laughs> for finding a way to somehow get me to root for the New England Patriots. I'm just I'm just trying to make sure your bases are covered to prepare you emotionally oh. for the next five weeks of your life. I feel and guilty. The other thing is, look, if New England wins their next three, that game against Buffalo, they're, you know, they've got three wins. They're eight and six. You I have to be take a situation? shower. I have to go take a shower. This is I feel filthy that I allowed Mark Schofield to talk me into rooting for the New England Patriots. I was a lawyer once. I can do, still do this pretty well. <sighs> Mr. Schofield, why don't you tell us what you have coming up this week and where people can find you on the Bird app, which has taken off. Your, yes, your, yes. your turn of phrase has become popular amongst all sorts of people. People well, in the Bills fan base, people in, uh, oh my God. I've ruined your night. I mean, you guys aren't going to have me back. 
I'm, this is incredible. You can find me on the Bird app at Mark Schofield. You can find me at USA Today's Touchdown Wire where I wrote a piece today with a video breakdown on uh, Tuesday. Just pretty much you talked about kicking dirt on somebody, kicking dirt on some Carson Wentz. It looks <laughs> like the Wentz wagon is no more. Um, obviously, uh, Pat's Pulpit, the uh, Scotia, which is appointment listed in for my parents and my parents only. My friends, like always, it's a blast to be with you. And then you have our Buffalo Bills. They won 27-17 to 17 against the Chargers. <sighs> Do you know what a load off my shoulders that was, Chris, to see that we beat the team that is typically our nemesis in the L.A. Chargers? Yeah, we're like, we've only beat them like 10 times. I know. And we're only three since 2000. And in the process have maintained our one and a half game lead in the AFC East. A toast to the last of the Sunday one o'clock games we'll see until week 17. The primetime Bills are about to embark on a slate of nationally televised games. A whole month's worth for the first time in my entire life. Adult life. Chris, are how do you feel about this? Any nerves? Any concern? Uh, well... The only concern I have is me being functional at work the following day. These are primetime games. I get up at 5 a.m. for work. See, this is where you're a sucker. See, me? I don't work another Monday or Tuesday for the rest of the month. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty nice. Back in May when the schedule came out, fans were overjoyed at the idea that their Bills team was going to play the most primetime game since 1996. The term primetime Bills got thrown around a ton. People were throwing it on their social media handles. It was widely celebrated by the fan base. You might have had to drink a Seagram's on it because I think you gave me two and a half. Yeah. And I was like, you should take the over on that. Because it was a, but it was a national recognition of our team by the schedule makers as one of the more entertaining teams in the country, right? Yes. It's almost like the NFL saw the Buffalo Bills and said, this is a team that's going to be interesting down the stretch. And here we are. Yeah. We've, we've fulfilled the prophecy. <laughs> but all the pomp and circumstance and celebration, that's over now because the games are actually here. And man, are primetime games a different animal. My lifetime has been filled with horror shows masquerading as primetime Buffalo Bills football games. Let's, let's run down a short list. Uh, Nick Folk and Terrell Owens on Monday Night Football. I was at the stadium for that. It was anarchy. I saw a kid. I saw a kid wearing a to jersey, flipping people off in the parking lot, and hitting the head with a full can of beer. And I watched an SUV full of Cowboys fans get fought by forty people at a red light. It was chaos. Leotis McKelvin fumbling away a surefire win in Foxborough on Monday Night Football. Uh, my recollection of that game was I was uh, dating a redhead. I was at the bar. She sent me a text and was like, you know, what are you doing? And then she like almost kind of invited herself out to the bar. And I was like, I don't know. That's such a good idea. And so we watched the Monday night game. And then because we drove separately, I was already at the bar. She, the fumble happens. We lose the game. 
I just left. I didn't say anything to her. So I'm like, you know, I'm on Petrie Street in Atlanta, and I get a text from her like, where are you? I was like, oh, I left. Did you not see what happened with McKelvin fumbling? This is why I told you you shouldn't come out to the bar. I'll do you one better. I was at Tony Rome's in West Seneca. Now called Mooney's. Yeah, that's where we met. So I went outside to smoke when I saw them lining up for that kickoff. And I looked at everyone at the table and goes, the Buffalo Bills. I told them, the Buffalo Bills lose this game. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? You're insane. They're, they're going to they're gonna run the clock out. And I was like, I've watched this movie too many times and I need to smoke. And I went outside. Now, I'm not a smoker anymore. That's how long ago this was. Chris, a decade. A decade and change. And I'm standing outside quietly in the dark of the parking lot just smoking a cigarette. And all of a sudden, some fat guy, I'm talking 380 bills, blows the door off of its hinges. Like, he hit the door so hard that it actually, like, hung crookedly, just kind of awkwardly off to the side. And storms out of the bar along with a stream of people just leaving the bar going, son of a bitch, the bills, bah, 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 bah. And I just sat there for a moment, and I was like, well, I die a little bit inside, but also, I was right. I knew it. I called it because of the rest of my life experiences. I mean, think about it. The bloody Sunday massacre on Sunday Night Football against New England. Yep, I remember that. What about... 2008, November 08, Phil Dawson, 56 yards. What about every Browns game? The wide right 2.0, where Trent Edwards threw three interceptions. But we don't need the light lights on for that. And then we missed a wide right field goal. My dad was at the game, and he texted me after X. He called me, and the only things he said were, I don't know how you root for this fucking team. And then he hung up the phone. I go, Dad, I root for this team because of you. You did this to me. Oh, it was a it, oh, it was a night. <laughs> or the second iteration of that matchup where we were treated to on Thursday night football in front of the whole country, the knee injury game. Oh yeah, EJ. Where in a span of five plays, EJ Manuel and uh, Man. Ryan Hoyer, Hoyer were both knocked out of the game with knee injuries, and we were treated to Jeff Tool and Brandon Whedon playing for the rights to the worst backup in the AFC title. <laughs> like, what? Chris, from the start of the decade to 2012, the Bills were an impressive 0-11 and in nationally televised games under the lights. For our older listeners, I can only imagine the atrocities you can recall in your lifetime, which I encourage you to tweet at us over at Rockpile Report on Twitter. I mean, as of last year, this team was 32 and 44 all time in primetime. A losing record. So you can understand why, <laughs> while I'm able to appreciate the national recognition of the growth this team has undergone, I fight the urge to rip a shot of bourbon at the thought of watching another one. My stomach just tightens up a little bit in anticipation of the stress that Monday night's going to bring me. You, you've seen me during important games. Chris, I'm manic. Yeah. I'm, I'm unable to be reasoned with. Yeah, but as of right now, the last two seasons, there has been a shift change with the Bills. And even though you tell me you understand that... 
we're moving forward in the right direction. You still assume something bad is going to happen. It was like that earlier this year with the Rams, the Raider game. All the games that we've uh, kind of come back and won in the fourth quarter. I mean, I will say, this iteration of the Buffalo Bills under Sean McDermott have been something different. I mean, first and foremost, let's talk about road games. I mean, and this is why I guess as fans, we should trust a little bit more in this coaching staff. First of all, the Bills have become road warriors under Sean McDermott. What a rush. Look at this. Through years one and two, they went 5-11 and 11 on the road. That first year, they made the playoffs. Those, those road wins that first year, Kansas City, Atlanta, that's what staked our claim to a playoff spot. In 19 and 20, the team is now 9 and 4 on the road under this coaching staff. That might be, if you go back and look at what Rex Ryan did and what, uh, what was that baloney-eating son of a bitch's name? Marone. Doug Marone. <laughs> the guy that's about to be fired in Jacksonville. When you look at our record under him, were we ever that good on the road? No. No. Because he didn't have a quarterback. I mean, Kyle Orton was... Kyle, <laughs> what do you mean, Kyle Orton? Kyle Orton was the epitome of a quarterback. Hey, listen, Kyle Orton was the last one, the last Bills quarterback to get us above, above the halfway mark of the NFL in terms of passer rating or our passing yards per game. You remember that one? The stats I throw at you, the charts I make? <sighs> so when I see that, I say, okay, this is a team that's built to kind of go on the road. That's built to go out there and try to make some things happen. And then I look at our primetime games. And Chris, as I am often wont to do, I have a chart. Oh, you made a chart? i got to find right. it. That's right. I have a chart. What I've done is I've charted every primetime game McDermott has coached. Organized it by games, number of games per year, the wins and losses, the points for and against, and look at the margin of it. And my observations when I take this all into account, which we will tweet out. First of all, in 2017, McDermott's first primetime game, his weapons were Zay Jones, Deontay Thompson, and Jordan Matthews. And we lost to the Jets by 13 points. In 2018, McDermott plays the Patriots with Derek Anderson as his quarterback. I remember that game. You, uh... Yeah, you went down to sit with Super Mexican. Yeah, because me and my wife, I was hostile. Yeah. I was a hot. <laughs> if this was a trial, I would have been locked up for being a hostile. I witness. don't think either of you admitted to being mad with, at one another, but I could sense it. It was atrocious. So, Super Mexican had an extra ticket, and I went and watched that game with him. As you should. Yeah. It was, a, it was an abomination. The only good thing about that game was that they retired Bruce's number at halftime, and it was cool how they shut the whole stadium down the lights and everything else but also out of that not only did they get destroyed but also they held tom brady to zero touchdowns kind of a sign like hey wait a minute this defense even when things are going atrociously we can stop that guy then in 2019 they were scheduled for zero primetime games 
Zero. Do you remember that? Yeah, last Thanksgiving season. Thanksgiving was supposed to be our consolation prize for not getting yeah, they a prime time ca- game. They kind of counted that as prime time, which it technically isn't. And then we destroyed the Cowboys. Yeah. And the league gave us two games because we did so well and we charted so well. And we proceeded to go one and one. And this is what stands out to me. Points for and points against our margin. I mean, because what we lost by 19 points. Our margin, <laughs> our margin was negative 19 in 2018. Yeah. Our one primetime appearance. We broke even last year. 34 points for, 34 points against in two games. And in both of those games, both the win and the loss, it came down to what, the final minutes of the game? Yeah. So it's understandable why the NFL would give us these games. Now here's the question. What have we done with them so far? I'm, we've only done one, or at least had one game that was supposed to be scheduled for primetime. The Chiefs. I'm not going to count that abomination against the Titans because that's no, not, that A, was, a that's not primetime, and B, I don't, that wasn't supposed to be. We have one loss, and in that game, the Bills are thrown into the lurch with a wonky rescheduling process and don't handle it well. They play the sloppiest game of the season in terms of their front seven. I mean, their, their offense is sporadic at best. To, to the eyes, when you watch that game happen, that game could have been a vintage Bills primetime performance. And yet at the end of it, there we are in the final minutes, just one cruelly unsupported turnover away from tying and maybe winning that football game. How wild is that to you? That even on the night when the Bills were a joke, the Bills played a bad football game. We were right there at the end of it. Yeah, all we needed was that uh, Justin Zimmer turnover. So now you look at what's laid out in front of us. I, are you worried? Are you no. worried at all? No. None. I know you are. Well, yeah, because I've lived decades of emotionally driven just chaos. Yeah, but you can't recognize. I have PTSD because of this football team. But you can't recognize. Folks, I exaggerate. That's for those of you who might have PTSD. I, I understand it's far more serious than anything a football game might give me. You can't recognize that we've turned a corner. No, but I can. And no, I'm, you can't. I'm no, you can't. Slowly getting there. No, you I'm can't. Slowly. You're not even. I. Slow. You're not close to being there. Whereas you are. I am there. You're the enlightened one here in the room. Yes, as evidenced by your mohawk and your cardigan sweater. A, I don't have a mohawk. <laughs> B, this cardigan is comfortable as fuck. What do you call that on your head then? This is a great set of hair that I'm <laughs> growing out. It's a flow backwards with frosted not, tips. Well, that's what happens when you when you dye your hair blonde and then it grows out. Then it just becomes frosted tips. God, I hate you so much. <laughs> but I've been on this. We've turned a corner the whole season. The Rams game. We got this. We're fine. Josh Allen going to lead us. The Raider game. And even the Cardinal game, but that was like a fluke ending. Yeah, until I'm, you screwed us this week by saying, "Oh, that only happens at Cardinal Stadium." Yeah, well, we'll we'll uh, we'll fix that 
We'll fix that this week. I'm fine where the Bills are with these primetime games. I don't see it to be any kind of a problem. I feel like fans have reason to be encouraged by the progression of this team compared to what our history has been. And I'm excited to see this chapter of Bill's history get written because this next, Chris, this primetime stretch is going to dictate our future. If we tank it. Winning the division. Chris, if we tank it. We're not. We're out of the playoffs. If we cruise, who knows? We could put ourselves in position, depending on what goes on in the AFC, in contention for a top seed. I don't know about that. It's all up for grabs right now. All of it. I think we're good for third or fourth seed. It's wild. These are unprecedented times. (sighs) Can't wait to see him play out, buddy. Cheers. And so with that, we take a look at the Week 13 outlook. And the Bills Bills are going to go on the road to play the 49ers. And what is the first of a string of four straight primetime and premier slot games against a much maligned 49ers squad. Three of four on primetime. Broncos on a Saturday at 4.30. But that's a, but but on Saturday, that is primetime because Saturday night, most people have shit to do. Although I guess with COVID, yeah, maybe like you could watch argue it's Drew Locke and Josh Allen. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> with two home and two away, if they go 500 or better under the bright lights, week 17 might not matter. And this game against the San Francisco team that's that's as beat up as they are and just as up and down as they've been all season represents our best opportunity to land one. Miami is home against the Bengals. If they don't win that game, regardless of who they start at quarterback, they should be disqualified from the playoffs. I'm going to go bet that game. Oh, no. <laughs> who are you betting for? Bet on Miami. Oh, no. Miami fans, if you're listening to this show, abandon all hope ye who enter here because Chris just gave your team the kiss of death. New England is going away against the Chargers. Another week, another game against a high-powered offense that the Patriots just don't have at first glance the abilities to chase. And yet, at the same time, by virtue of their win last week, they're not in an elimination state. They can take another loss and still hang around. Chris, what do we have to do to get rid of the Patriots this year? I don't know. I don't know. I would love to be able to eliminate them. And then the New York Jets are going to be home against the Raiders. The Raiders are a total enigma. They go to the wire with Kansas City. They They beat them and lose a close one to them. They have you fooled thinking, hey, this is an elite team. That's just had a couple bad losses. And then you lose, what, 40, what was it, 43 to 6? Yeah. Jesus. Don't know how Against that, the Falcons. A don't know how that, that happens. Literally fired its coaching staff. They're so bad. I, I have no reason to believe the Jets will win. But as that game proved, stranger things have happened. Chris, this has been... This has been a fun week. It's been a fun show, and I'm just I'm I'm fighting the anxiety. I'm fighting the anxiety, and I I know I'm not the only Bills fan out there. I want you guys to tweet at us at Rockpile Report. How do you guys deal with your anxiety about the Buffalo Bills in prime time? How do you watch the games? What do you do to cope? 
Tweet at us. Let us know. We're going to talk about it next week. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to hear from you. But we got to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. Huge shout out to Scott Mason and Mark Schofield for showing up as they do faithfully whenever we call on them. And this has been your AFC East Roundup. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.